0: Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers.
1: And I'm Natalie Dalzicki.
0: Joining us today to discuss one of the most successful trilogies across media in the last century, The Lord of the Rings, are a fellowship of returning guests to Pop and Lock. We have tech and innovation editor for Libertarianism.org, Paul Matsko. Oh, thank you for having me again. Editor for intellectual history at Libertarianism.org, Paul Meany. Thank you very much and the Tomlinson Professor for Political Theory at McGill University, Jacob Levy. Hello again,
2: everyone.
1: All right, guys. After nine long hours of viewing the trilogy, for the second time, even to the most oblivious viewer, it's clear that this story is about the desire for power and how power can corrupt even the loveliest of hobbits. But is that all this trilogy is about? There has to be more.
3: Well, I watched Lord of the Rings when I was really really young. I think I was 4 or 5 when I first watched it. So I've had a long time to think about it. And I read the books later on, but I mostly watched the films. That's like what I was always into. Whenever I talked to my parents about it, they always used to say like Lord of the Rings is the best story because it's about everything. It's about all the timeless things of good and evil and power and everything else. But it took me a long time to figure out what Lord of the Rings is about cuz I just watched the movies and didn't read the books for a long time. But if we're just going to stick to just the movies instead of talking about the books constantly, because that's what we're here for, the movies, I'd say it's mostly about, in my opinion, of course, in philosophy, there's been this challenge of why be moral to begin with. And this is kind of picked up by Plato in the story of the Ring of Gyges, where he talks about this honest farmer who finds a ring and the ring makes him go invisible, just like the ring in Lord of the Rings. How crazy. And then when he gets, he used to be a good lad, but then he gets the ring, he goes off, seduces the queen, kills the king, steals a ton of things, does a bunch of bad things. And then one of the interlocutors in Plato's dialogue talks about, well, what if if you give the good man this ring, he'll become a bad man? So morality is really just for weak people who can't do what they want to do. And the ring, every time a person takes the ring of power, they have grand ideas about what they'll be. And so, for example, Boromir in the first film... And the book as well, he thinks he can use the ring for good, but eventually he kind of lets loose that he wants to be this powerful, great warrior as well. Galadriel talks about how she'll be loved and feared by everyone, and in the books as well at a certain point Sam has the ring and uh, he could use it to sneak into the Baradur, but he knows if he uses it he'll get these ideas of Samwise the Great with a flaming sword like commanding armies even though he's three foot tall and so the ring gives people power that they would never have normally. I think a big part of Lord of the Rings is, is the only people who can resist the ring are those who remember themselves. And so in the first film, when Galadriel goes absolutely crazy and starts talking about, I will be a lovely queen and everyone will love me, she rejects the ring and then says, I will stay Galadriel. She stays true to herself, her authentic, what she actually is. Sam does the exact same thing. There's a whole section in the book as well where he talks, where It's kind of like his inner monologue or his thoughts, and he goes through these ideas of him being a grand and great warrior, but then he goes like, no, not a not a garden swollen to a realm, just a garden. He goes back to just being a simple gardener. His love for Frodo anchors him, but also his simple hobbit-like tendencies and ideas. He doesn't want to command the world. He doesn't want to command everyone. He just wants to be his own gardener. And so I think a lot of The Lord of the Rings is about choice and morality. And it's about if the life you want to lead requires this much power, beyond your natural abilities, you shouldn't have it anyway. You should never want that life. The life you have should be within your grasp. It shouldn't require this level of godlike power. And then you can see the question of why be moral with people like Gollum. Gollum loves the ring and really wants it, but it ruins him. And even then, this is again going to the books, you're constantly in the book, in the movie, blah, blah, blah. But Frodo talks about how no one in the Shire killed anyone for hundreds of years. So Smeagol killing Deagle is like a huge deal, and the ring is what caused him to do it. And the ring makes him decrepit, miserable, lonely, friendless. Like, power is isolating. And Lord of the Rings, when you put the ring on, you go invisible, you can't see anyone. There's voices in your head constantly. It makes you actually kind of insane. Not kind of, it makes a lot of people insane. So I think, from watching this movie a million times over since I was a kid, I think Lord of the Rings is about not just a sense of integrity, but a sense that certain powers shouldn't be touched and that it, it isolates you and makes you someone else. And that's my, that's my take. Everyone can tear it to shreds. Cause I went first. It,
4: it, one of the, the hard things about analyzing Tolkien, either the movies or the books is that he was very resistant to anybody's attempt to allegorize his story. Like he hated allegories and this is rooted in his, just his intellectual habits. I've got the quote.
2: Do we want the quote?
4: Yeah, give us the quote.
2: I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thought and experience of readers.
4: But even in his resistance to allegorizing, he, he he engages in something very similar, which is uh, he constructs motifs and themes, and the line between allegory and theme and motif can get very thin at times. So, some of it's like to acknowledge that it's easy to find the Tolkien quote where anyone would propose a theory to him during his life, and he actually lived to see these books enjoy you know a popular success. Um, Anytime you know a journalist would come to him or a fan would come to him and say, "Here's my theory about what this means," whether it's like uh, the scouring of the shire as an anti-socialist parable or uh, whatever it may be, he was he would always poo-poo the concept that it was an allegory. At the same time, there's often some legitimate kernel uh, that the person was picking up on, even if uh, flushing it out into. Uh, in allegory kind of granted too much intent and purpose, and I, I think it's because Tolkien he he didn't like the didactic nature of allegory. Um, he wanted it to be he wanted his message to be subtler, um, not to be as mechanistic as allegory tends to be, where there's a one for one connection between you know the, the 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 story and the the true story behind the story. But he still did engage. I mean, so like like with Paul's, I, I think. Uh, example of the rings pointing to the corruption of power, how power corrupts. That can be true. But if you'd asked Tolkien about it, he would have been like, well, no, that's not what I'm trying to do.
3: (laughs) Well, I think a lot of Tolkien is he's, it's kind of like history that didn't happen, but he pretends did the book reads a lot like history. And the movie had the philosophy of when Peter Jackson was directing, he was like, imagine we had been sent on set to record where it actually happened. This battle, it was always felt like it was very real and very grounded. But I think sometimes in Tolkien, now, there's a quote about it, but I don't have it on hand, but it's basically about how he loved myths. And because myths are outside of time, and because they're outside of time, the knowledge that they give us can be applied anywhere. I think there's often like allegory and ac- applicability are different things. I don't think Tolkien would be opposed to people reading into it. I just think he would oppose people saying, this is definitively what it is.
4: I think that's true. I mean, uh one of his uh, books he wrote before he wrote Lord of the Rings was on fairy stories and he he used fairy stories oh, somewhat roughly analogously to how we talk about fantasy and he was writing a particular kind of you know he's kind of the one of the founding figures in high fantasy and um, all the high fantasies that come after um but it, for him like the the point of a fairy story is that it must feel real. There's no wink, wink, nod, nod to Jacob's quote about, you know, from Tolkien about how he's writing history. Like we hear fairy story, we think of like cute little kid, cutesy little kidsy stories that aren't meant to be taken seriously. And that's not what he wants to do with a with, uh, uh, fairy story.
3: I remember Lord of the Rings. It is like, I watched it when I was really young. It is not a film you want to show to like every kid. Because there's a lot of stuff that I think a lot of kids will find really scary. And it's like, you think about how people just die or like their houses are destroyed. I remember reading the books in the, the third movie when they're sieging Minas Tirith, the giant white city. In the books, people are like throwing themselves off roofs. In the Even in the movies, there's like civilians being slaughtered by orcs and all. It's actually so harrowing. So sometimes people say fantasy is kind of like a
2: big joke.
3: North Rings is kind of dark.
4: Well, Denethor sets himself alight like a you know monk in Saigon. I mean, you know.
2: The treatment of Denethor there is on the top ten list of things that Peter Jackson wrecks and ruins. There
3: is, a I'll give you my one as well. I love Faramir. Yes. I'm really sad Also that in, on the list. In the in the books, uh Frodo and Sam come to Faramir and Faramir basically just says, Yeah, I don't want the ring at all. It it'll corrupt me. I have no use for this. Go ahead. And is like a pure of heart dude. But in the movies, they're like, okay, we got to get some more content, stretch this out. So Faramir's conflicted about it. He kid- or captures them, has a few Baramir moments, a chance for Captain Faramir to show his quality. But then eventually he yields and he, he knows the right thing to do is to let Frodo go. And that's cool too, but the book did it so much better. Because it has some of my favorite quotes, which is about Faramir and war and how he doesn't... It's not the, hes not a pacifist. He just doesn't like war. He thinks it's necessary, but doesn't always enjoy it. And I think to get the exact. One. Oh yeah, this quote I've always loved. I'd not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend. That—that's why I love Faramir. But the books or the movies—they kind of make him into a bit more of a tragic or kind of conflicted. But in—in in the books, he's very much so. No, I just—I understand pretty intuitively that the ring's terrible. <laughs>
4: Well, Jackson cranks up the angst. I mean, some of this is an artifact of the time. It's the late 90s, early 2000s, and everything had to be angsty. Whereas in the in the books, it's like Aragorn never has – in the books, he knows he's the true king. There's no, like, yeah. huge self-doubt where he has to evolve, like, uh, in his, you know, confidence. That, that's, that's a Jacksonian uh, import, and that's a reflection of kind of, you know, Uh, social norms in the late 20th century. Whereas, you know, and and I think you can see that in Faramir as well. Everyone has to have their own little angsty arc. Um, And, uh, but yeah, that's, that, if if you're a book, uh, a fan of the book first, and then you watch the movies, that's one of the things that's just going to annoy you every time you see Faramir or Aragorn, you know, any of these characters portrayed.
2: It's my overall theory that ratcheting Aragorn down was in the driver's seat. Jackson wanted Wanted a story that was more of an Aragorn unfolding and coming into his own story because he thought that was interestingly heroic. But that means that Aragorn's much less impressive morally, much less impressive as a personality, as a character until very near the end. And so accordingly, lots of other people who in the books are almost as impressive as Aragorn and who are kind of inspired to rise to his level um have to be reduced. You can't have Faramir morally outshining Aragorn. You can't have Aylmer, um, who gets reduced to this kind of side joke instead of being um really a, someone who's already it's a, almost it's a waste Aragorn. of
3: Carl Urban, that's what I say. Oh
2: absolutely. Absolutely. So if everybody else gets taken down a notch. Even the ants get taken down a notch. Um the in in the movie, the ants have to Kind of get tricked, kind of stumble accidentally into going to war. In the books, they decide to go to war. Um, it takes a long time. It takes a long debate, but they eventually say, no, even if this is the last march of the ants, even if this is our end, we must defend the forest against the orcs. We must take down Saruman. Um, in the movie, they don't decide that. Merry and Pippin just say, well, go drop us off somewhere that's so close that you're going to see the wreckage. But but their decision was not to do it until they get there and get angry. So this, this, this is, I think, lots of the individual characters who we look at and say, what happened there in the movie? It's that they get morally ratcheted down. Elrond gets terribly morally ratcheted down. He spends most of the movie's trying to run away from the conflict instead of being, along with Gandalf and Galadriel, one of the chief captains and organizers behind the scenes.
3: Now, I do love Aragorn in the films, though, and always have. Ever since I was a kid, coolest guy ever. And then the, the movies do such a good job of making him so much... like
0: The books are great, but the movies make him look cool. Oh, he's so cool. Vigo Mortensen is like, <laughs> he was the cool hero for fantasy movies, like of that era. Everyone was like, Aragorn, he's the quintessential hero. He's got the long, like, white Jesus hair. <laughs> he's got the cool sword, but he's like, kind of dirty because he's like, I've crawled, I've clawed my way back from the dirt and like being out in the wild, but I'm also a king. He's got everything you want. Perfect. Man. He has Liv Tyler, who was one of my original crushes when watching this movie i have to admit i remember that was a big big liv tyler fan at the time now i've transitioned into i am definitely an uh eowyn stan at yes. this moment is <laughs> oh, yes. a much better character uh in the movie and is i think portrayed greatly but a little nostalgic for liv tyler me and my friends we
3: think aragorn is the best so much so in our drinking games we have a thing where we just every time Aragon does something cool, which is nearly always, he starts off like <laughs> smoking a pipe in the corner. Then he fights a bunch of ring rates. Then he like, what else does he do? He fights, he does some stuff in Moria. That's pretty cool. He fights like 200 Urukai in his own. Then the next movie he's doing, he's just always on it. So they make him very cool.
0: It sounds like you only get halfway through the movie before you fall asleep. When you're playing
2: this game. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no,
3: you're doomed. <laughs>
0: there's also one for every time there's a cinematic shot, that'll ruin you.
4: I'll, I'll give a out That's one of the characters they made, uh, Peter Jackson made less cool and that's Gimli. So in in the books he's like this very stoic, determined figure. Um and in the movies he's he's the comic relief. You know, the it's line. Like, yeah, which would annoy me. It's going to annoy all the the uh you know, all the um the short the dwarf kings. uh the you know, dwarf stands out there. Like you, you did the dwarves, the elves make get made really cool. Uh, Legolas is I mean he's he. They they you know they make him do a little again. This is very late nineties, early two thousand. It's like we got to do some like extreme sports, and so he like rides the shields down the <laughs> stairs while shooting. And um, that again, the artifact of its time. But uh, yeah, poor Gimli.
0: But then they try and make up for it when they make the Hobbit films, and they're like throw a bunch of dwarves in there, just throw <laughs> dwarves at him.
2: Well, and 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 they take Thorin and ha- and tell Thorin go do Aragorn cosplay now.
3: Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh. I knew there was a reason I like Thorin so
0: much. One of the first things, especially in the movie, that we get is the story of the forging of the rings of power and they come with the first big other than the expositional details the first big blanket statements sort of value judgments of the people that inhabit middle earth and one of the things that stands out to me so much is you know they talk about how fair and wise the elves are and the hardy craftsmen that make up the dwarves uh, in the mines and then nine rings go to men and their hearts easily corrupted, which I think lends itself into the, the very sort of easy interpretation to see um, that I think is justified in seeing it, what, that Paul talked about the power that, you know, the ring of power corrupts and the story is one of corruption power, et cetera, et cetera. But why single out the race of men In particular, uh, is it just sort of a touchstone for readers and audiences to sort of understand what this world is like? Because then throughout the rest of the movie, we're not following men, uh, or or humans, per se, for a majority of it, there's stories about hobbits and dwarves and elves and everything. And they all have very human qualities to them. But the race of men within Middle Earth, is portrayed as this generally very foolish, corruptible, like every time you go to it, you know, they go to Rohan, they go to Gondor, um, they go to all these places, they are generally ruled over by a corrupt human man who has to undergo some sort of realization uh facing his demise so what is the kind of like reckoning with the racial politics of middle earth embedded in these texts
2: so um, i'm going to talk about the books for a minute first and then i'll make the transition to what changes in the movies. And by the books, I'm going to include The Silmarillion. I'm going to include The the History of the First Age.
3: A Man of Taste and Culture. Yes. We're diving deep. Oh, great. All right. Strap in, (laughs) Natalie.
0: Natalie has never read the books and has only seen these movies all the way through for this podcast. So strap in, Natalie. There will be a quiz after.
1: Okay. (laughs) Ready to take notes.
2: The Silmarillion, which is the posthumously published collection into kind of novel shape that Christopher Tolkien was able to put together of um, what had been Tolkien's real, most serious life work, which was the history of the First Age. Lord of the Rings is set in the Third Age of Middle-earth. Um, Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien's real heart, real sense of mission lay in um, the grander history of the First Age. And In the First Age, the elves are corrupted. The elves are corrupted by what? The elves are corrupted by – lust for the really pretty jewels that the finest craftsmen among them made, the Silmarils. Uh, So we get this structurally similar story of corruption. And unlike with the ring, the Silmarils don't corrupt. Why not? Because Sauron had no part in making them. But the corruption is internal to the elves. Which is to say, Tolkien has a vision in which anyone can fall. and. What's going on in Lord of the Rings? In Lord of the Rings, uh, you have elves around who remember this. Galadriel actually took part in it. Uh, she she was one of the elves who came back from heaven to Middle Earth in pursuit of the Silmarils. This was her family. The men can be tricked. Why? Not because their souls are intrinsically more fragile. Not because there's there are racial differences about morality. Just because they don't have the same. First hand memory of it. Elves and dwarves in their different way can be corrupted. Men and, men and dwarves can be corrupted. And hobbits can be corrupted. Insofar as we remember that Gollum was originally Smeagol and that Smeagol was of a kin to the hobbits. In the book in Lord of the Rings, we don't see elves being genuinely corrupted. But that really is just because they've already gone through their version of this. Uh, the books do have racial politics around the difference between, on the one hand, elves who can't be corrupted, on the other hand, orcs who are wholly irredeemable, and then this spectrum of men, where the men who descend from Numenor, the men who are of the same line of descent as Aragorn, within the confines of the Lord of the Rings, everyone is temptable. Everyone can fall prey. Not everyone is redeemable. There's no sign of orcs and trolls being redeemable because their corruption or their their creation was corrupted
3: on the topic of like orcs i'd like to step in real quick that Tolkien kind of has an idea of good and evil a bit like aquinas in that he doesn't believe that evil exists evil is more like it latches onto things that were good and makes them worse but evil doesn't exist on its own it's kind of like the way a shadow can only exist with light there'll always be light but there won't always be a shadow And so in his world, good is bound to win because evil has to subsist off good to begin with. So it'll it'll always be parasitic and always eventually fail. And all the bad things in Lord of the Rings are corruptions of formerly good things. So the orcs are supposed to be a cheap parody of elves. Elves are tall and graceful. Orcs are bow-legged and small. uruk are a mutation of men and elves put together. Then you have the ringwraiths used to be the kings of men, but then they became the wraiths. Everything becomes something worse.
2: And the, the ants at least believe that trolls are corrupted ants.
3: There
4: there is this. I mean, I think on Paul's point about um, you know shadow and light and you know corruptibility, catastrophe. And, and, and to Jacob as well, that that there is a catastrophe that lurks in the background of Lord of the Rings. That's not. I mean, Silmarillion is not published till after Tolkien's death. You know, by his by his son combining together his notes. So it was in the background of, you know, of Tolkien's mind as he was writing Lord of the Rings, but not for the you know, initial generation of readers. If I had to pick one theme to go back to the original question, that's at the core of Lord of the Rings um, and, and the Hobbit, it, it's this concept of what Tolkien coined you catastrophe and uh, Tolkien coined it because in, in his mind, you have um everyone recognizes that in drama there is tragedy. And a tragedy is what happens or uh to use another Tolkien phrase, a disc catastrophe, like when when something sudden intervenes and it's bad, that thus dis it's bad or crooked. Um And so a dramatic element is when, like, oh, suddenly Oedipus finds out that actually he did kill his father and sleep with his mother, right? Like, that that's – so very old, you know, Greek tragedy has that discatastrophic element where suddenly uh, life seems normal and it takes a really sharp sudden turn for the worse. But what Tolkien wanted to do was take the stories of discatastrophe that he studied professionally, and he loved Norse tales – uh, he loved. Uh, uh, he loves um, Finnish. I mean, he actually pulls the character of uh, Eowyn from a, from a Finnish Valkyrie. Um, he loves old you know, Anglo-Saxon stories. So he takes all the Beowulf and the like. He takes all these old stories of discatastrophe and inverts it, where instead of a sudden tragic turn for the worse, in the midst of a catastrophe, there's a sudden reversal to something unexpectedly good. Uh, and, and to use a Tolkien quote uh, from On Fairy Stories, it is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind that, however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it, when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat and lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art in having a peculiar quality. And you've got examples of this throughout the. Throughout the books, the obvious example, Frodo and Gollum, right? At the last moment where y- you've been expecting him to get the ring there and finally throw it in. And then we have this disastrous turn where he is corrupted by the ring and decides to keep it. And then the surprise joyful turn is when Gollum seizes it and falls in. Um, you have another moment when they're Sam and Frodo are rescued by the eagles. These are you catastrophic moments. I mentioned Eowyn earlier. This comes from an old Norse legend of uh, Valkyrie Brynhild. Actually, it wasn't. It's not a Finnish Valkyrie. The uh, Tom Bobadil is based on a Finnish legend. Anyways, this is a Norse legend of Brynhild, whose story ends with a murder suicide. But instead of her dying, you know, you expect her to die with the Witch King at the last moment. With uh, Mary's film underrated, help she slays the witch king. So we have all these these turns. He takes the old Norse story of Brynhild and makes it you catastrophic with Eowyn.
3: I was going to build off that uh, on the idea of Anglo Saxons. So Tolkien had a love of the Anglo Saxons, and their great thing was that they never gave up. They would always fight till the very last. And so in Beowulf, Beowulf fights. One of these monsters. What was it called again? The one who uh, Grendel. Grendel. That's the one. Yeah, Grendel. He fights him with his bare hands, and it's like why that he fights him naked, but basically no armor, no weapons. And I always wonder why he fight him naked to begin with. And the whole point of it is, is that in the Anglo-Saxon idea of the world, the world's bound to end, fall into chaos. There's no way to win, but there is a way to embarrass the forces that fight us by fighting them on equal terms with honor. And the whole point of the Anglo-Saxons had that Tolkien admire so much was that raw sense of will to overcome. But just being good at fighting and having willpower wasn't what Tolkien wanted. He wanted to combine military victory with moral victory. And so in Lord of the Rings, people don't win because they've got better strategy or they're better at fighting. They win because of a moral integrity that they have. Théoden wins at the Battle of Helmstead because he rides out and finally fights for his people. And then Eowyn and the boys come in and do the rest of the work. But the whole point is that it's always a moral victory. And then people like Eowyn, when she's supposed to die, she doesn't die. She spent her all of her life trying to find a way to valorize herself and die in war. But then she finds out the importance of love of Faramir and growing. And it's Everything about Tolkien is about taking away the harsh edges of the... Like not everything, but everything about the fighting is about taking away the harsh edges of Anglo-Saxons and replacing it with kind of a much more... Kind of a little more humility and a lot more about morality and personal character.
4: It has religious significance. So he when he talks about this in his letters, um, he sees um, the U, U catastrophe, the ultimate U catastrophe, the the true capital M myth, of which all the myths that he's writing and the myths that he's pulling characters and concepts from in in the you know human past are all in his mind reflections of like the the you e-catast- catastrophic moment of the incarnation of the crucifixion resurrection of Christ, so you know Tolkien is is deeply Catholic, and it's actually this concept of you catastrophe that leads him to convert C.S. Lewis uh, to well to ultimately the Anglicanism to Tolkien's disappointment, but converts him to Christianity during a late night walk at Oxford. <laughs> so like it it, it that. To me, that's like the kind of the key theme uh, of what he's trying to do. Um, again, it's not an allegory because catastrophe is a is a theme. Um, so I think that's why he was very kind of resistant to allegorization. But no, I think your point's well made, Paul, and um, y- you should recognize that turn. And he talked about that that turn um, kind of throughout his writing about about why he wrote these books.
2: And, and there's, I mean, there's a clear Christian thread woven in. Part of what we're getting when we read uh, the Lord of the Rings and think about their relationship to the Norse Is and Norse myths and so on um, is the the attention to humility and the moral value of humility that uh, that and Frodo's ultimately humble self-sacrifice that clearly has Christian connotations that weren't present in the Norse original uh, but, Tolkien's version, by contrast with C.S. Lewis's overtly allegorical Narnia books, is never going to be reducible to that. There's one sense in which the Lord of the Rings trilogy looks like the story of the triumph of Aragorn. There's one sense in which it looks like the story of the ultimate self-sacrifice of Frodo. But we most hear Tolkien's voice... Through these funny nature-oriented side characters, through Tom Bombadil, through Treebeard, through Sam, um, and through Faramir in that speech about what the swords defend. Those are the most Tolkieny moments, not actually Frodo's Christ-likeness. Uh, Tolkien is deeply attached to the old, the traditional, the comfortable, the natural um, – there's this tremendous sense of villainy attached to Sauron for Sauron's building factories that belch out smoke and make stuff. Um, the Shire is not a Christian place, and it's also not a Norse place. It's a very Tolkieny place.
3: Small is good.
4: Yeah. Well, he he quotes he quotes William Blake uh, frequently in his letters. He was a Blake, you know, the Romantic poet. That I mean, every. Uh, Englishmen Englishman of, of his generation would have read. Um, and you know, there's the line and did the from his famous poem and did those feet in ancient time. Was Jerusalem builded there among these dark satanic mills? Uh I will not cease for mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And you can see that dark satanic mill concept, you know, hostility to industry, and modernity, kind of in general. That's Soromon, I mean, Soromon is. Uh, who would use the tools of the enemy to try and defeat Sauron? Um, the scouring of the Shire is to remove these grim factories, uh, w- which uh, it, in Tolkien's letters he says that, like the, the grim mills in, in the Shire, w- w- you know, when, when the Hobbits return, he kind of had in the back of his mind his childhood hometown of, I think it's pronounced Sarhol. Or uh, being swallowed by industrialized and expanding Birmingham. And the old mill was decrepit. Um, they saw a photo of it. And so, like, there is, I mean, there's that that pastoral sentiment that's very strong in the books, um, which, which helps explain why it was so popular that you got embraced by the counterculture in the 60s. I mean, that was one of the bits. I mean, if you were concerned about the effects of industrialization on the environment or on society, then you would read you know, the scouring of the Shire, you would read Tom Bombadil, read about Sauron and be like, yeah, this is a, this is a parable for all the stuff I hate. So it's easy to see why it was received in that light as well.
1: While I was watching the first movie specifically, I was like, wow, they're like, aren't a lot of female characters in this story. And they don't really have prominent roles. But as as Paul Meany pointed out to me in my notes by the third movie, I was like, Oh, yeah, strong female character, put it in the notes. Um, so <laughs> I was kind of curious, can we talk about why her role, especially in like, if you look at fantasy film, like in a larger context was so legendary, and how it, how it kind of changed the way females were portrayed in future fantasy films too
4: so some of this is that we're coming at with the kind of expectations of our place in time and, and and that runs up against the expectations of his time i mean the inklings his society where he read out chapters from lord of the rings to you know lewis and and williams and other uh, other members of the club i mean they just would go and do you know boys and brews in the back of a in the back of a pub and it was all boys it was boys only um and uh, so you know, it's not like when he was getting notes on the chapters and someone was like, you know, have you thought about introducing a a, a, a female character here? <laughs> you know, just and and also he's he's working off of a lot of you know myths and legends from across the uh, mostly across Europe, which tend to skew heavily male representation. And so, but he's not trying. I mean, he, there's no intent. I don't think he is thinking about gender very explicitly in here at all. It's just, this is his source material and he has an example. Now it is important though. I mean, again, as part of that, um, the humility we were talking about earlier and the, the sense of uh, it's not always about the person with the biggest sword who swings it the hardest, that it's about grit and determination that you catastrophe can come from the most surprising of sources. It's not going to be Boromir who saves the world. In fact, not even Aragorn who saves even though he is the true, what king. saves
3: what saves the world is mercy. It's that Bilbo didn't kill Smeagol. That the what saves the world is a quiet, nice virtue, not a bombastic battle.
4: Exactly, and 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 Eowyn fits in with that theme as well. Like, who is it? The, the the now Jackson gets this wrong. Like, the my understanding is that the prophecy was not that she that the Witch King can't be slain by a man. It's um, it, it but it's that um. And it's also worth noting that it's Mary who st- sticks him with the barrow, the barrow uh, dagger uh, that weakens him, and then she slays him with a you know with, with a sword thrust. But in both cases, I think they're even joining a Hobbit and Eowyn. It's it's a reminder that like it doesn't take some mighty man of valor to slay. You know, so there, there was a certain degree where he's he's subverting expectations. There is a feminist reading of this, and that that is done all the time, which is to look at that general theme of the subversion of expectations. That uh, it's not going to be up to your Aragorns and Boromirs; it's up to the Hobbits, to the marginalized, to the people who are looked down on and dispossessed in society. Uh, That's who you know. So there, there there are feminist readings of the book, but. Um, I, I don't think it's at the forefront of his mind as he's writing here. Well, obviously, yeah. But which is annoying. In It's annoying in Jackson when he gets his chance to just like... I mean, in the Hobbit trilogy, he is... You know, the Hobbit is shorter than any of the individual three books in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he still makes three movies out of one of them. And so he's packing all this stuff in, but and that's fine. Pat it out. Pat out the runtime, whatever. Floats your boat. But it, it's annoying that he subverts then what Tolkien is trying to do. It becomes all about the action. Uh, It becomes all about, you know, uh, Bilbo, uh, you know, uh, Martin Freeman, like takes, he actually takes on Azog with a, with a, with his sword drawn and like has a little fight. It it, it becomes about martial courage. It becomes about rather than grit and determination. Um, And, and, but there's also there, uh, you know, what, what does, what does Peter Jackson do? Well, he inserts in, a stereotypical strong female character, he invents Ariel, who is just kind of. A, but at the same time, is she really? She she falls in love with the dwarf just because you need a, a frisson of romantic. Can we
2: please not talk about these movies? <laughs> <laughs> so bad. It, it's it's
1: Those bad. Those movies
3: didn't happen. Where Lord of the Rings doesn't do well. Lord of the Rings doesn't do great on gender. That's it doesn't do great. There's not many female characters. Arwen does some cool stuff. Awen does some cool stuff in the movies. But even then Ewen's story is more about her coming to grips with a different kind of life and not being a militaristic person. But I said earlier, what I think it's very true about Lord of the Rings.
2: People skip is, over Galadriel, by the way.
3: Oh yeah, she's great too.
2: There there is an important <laughs> woman character. <laughs>
3: yeah, but in the movies she's like barely in them. And we're on the movies. What I was gonna say is that Lord of the Rings what I think it does have, especially in the movies, is a very Important message of like a very different kind of masculinity because all the characters in the movies. They cry, they embrace each other, they kiss, they sing. There's no, that's like, you know, that's a bit girly or that's a bit effeminate. They're very emotional. And from a young age, I kind of watched Lord of the Rings and had a very different perception of what manly meant. Because manly for me meant Aragorn. And Aragorn has the full range of emotions in the movie. He cries, he does, he has happy at moments, but like he embraces all of his friends. I remember in the third movie when I was really young watching it, Sam and Frodo just hugging each other as they thought they were going to die. I was like, oh my God. I was just, I remember reading some people talking about it and they were saying I'd never seen two men, like two not gay men, so like lovingly embrace and the fact that you can, you know, love the homies too. So I think that's what Lord of the Rings for me has excelled at as a movie. The books do a great job, but the movie really cements it for me as a non-aggressive, not toxic or chauvinistic, but a very nice, humble masculinity.
4: Though there is a, I mean, the Sam and Frodo relationship, one of the things that the movies strip out is that it's very clear in Tolkien that it's as much a commentary on like social uh, hierarchy and stratification as it is on male friendship. Like, it's very clear in the books that he is Frodo's servant, and that's emphasized. He calls him master. Uh, The the whole uh, friendship might develop between them. But whereas in the movies, well, they're just best friends for, for they're besties. And so it, it, there is some, again, some stuff that would have made a lot more sense in the context of 1930s, uh, upper middle class Britain um, that doesn't translate. And Ch- yeah, I'm fine with Jackson changing that.
2: But both both Mary and Pippin and Legolas and Gimli have very loving male friendships without uh, without the master servant relationship. But
3: isn't Simon supposed to be based off the Batman from World War One, He used to bring around or protect officers? in they're called Batman. they were kind of like uh, officers bodyguards in world war one if you read if you read stuff like um murder on the orient express as a character who's like i was this guy's batman but a batman was just like a bodyguard but sam's based off token's own experiences with like lower class men guarding officers and it was something he would have observed firsthand and they're all they're always very loyal apparently so it makes sense that sam's based off of them
2: can we talk about the, the cutting of the scouring of the Shire?
3: Oh, of course.
2: So, Natalie, the books end with the denouement where Sauron and Wormtongue have gone and taken over the Shire. And they are running it as their own little thugocracy with the help of Sauron's semi-orcish human servants. Um, they corrupted some of the hobbits a little bit. But fundamentally, they've just taken over, and they're looting it for all it's worth, and they're fouling and polluting everything, and they're cutting down trees for no good reason. Uh, And the hobbits, and particularly Merry and Pippin, who have at this point risen to the rank of being a knight of Rohan, a guard of Minas Tirith, and are figures of martial virtue, they go and they raise the Shire in rebellion and – Without Gandalf's help, Gandalf takes them to the boundaries of the Shire and says, I'm going off to talk to Tom Bombadil. You guys have grown up now. You get to deal with this for yourselves. And they go back to the Shire and they rid the Shire of Sauron's rule. Uh, This is politically important and politically valuable, as well as being a sign of the hobbits having matured in a way that the movies don't wholly let them. It's a sign of a self-governing society cleansing itself of autocracy and corruption. And it, it, it pains me so much that we didn't get the scouring of the Shire in the movies.
3: But also a part that's important to think about the Shire and the scouring is what it looked like before that. And before that, there was a mayor who didn't really do anything uh, in the Shire. And there was also sheriffs who looked after stray animals. There was basically no crime. There was no real government at all. It was just people kind of working together and living in pretty much harmony in a very idyllic and gorgeous setting with eight meals a day. So it's a big transformation what happens to the Shire.
2: Yeah, Saruman's regime introduces taxes and the taxes are bitterly resented. It's perfectly well understood that the taxes are just confiscation.
4: But it, I, it is possible to, to make it overly libertarian sounding, which is, you know. Uh, Tolkien was was no libertarian. Uh, he he was a he he was a critic of. He didn't like politics. He 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 he, t- he talks in his letters about how little interest he has in. You know the argument over whether the socialist Labour Party is going to win or the conservative Tories. Like how just completely disinterested he is in the politics of his time, and he was always very resistant to people trying to impose a political vision. But that doesn't mean he didn't have a political vision. He did, and it was this kind of yeah, romantic, pastoral, even c- communitarian. I mean, he has something closer in form to probably to the to 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 I know, not, yeah, nineteenth century. Um, communitarian or even Georgism than it does to uh, 20th century political movements because Tolkien's kind of a man out of time. Um, at his heart, he's a he's a 19th century you know romantic pastoralist. So I mean, it is there, but it's possible to I mean, because like a libertarian reading, I, I'm sensitive to ways in which he's anti modern. He he writes about how. Uh, Tolkien in his letters talks about how he he doesn't like cars. Cars help destroy the pastoral landscape. He doesn't like heavy industry. He likes old, simple industry like mills, water powered
3: mills. Have you heard the story about how when he was given a voice recorder, he said a prayer before? Yeah, he, he <laughs> they give him a voice recorder like he records from Lord of the Rings, him reading it, and he did a quick prayer beforehand just in case because he was that like he re- I and mean, he had advertisement even too. I think like Tolkien, yeah. Tolkien's no libertarian but I think there's a lot of good themes within them. And one of the things I yeah, really like yeah, is one sure. of his letters where he says as follows. If we could get back to personal names, it would do a lot of good. Government is an abstract noun, meaning the process of governing, and it should be offence to write it with a capital G or to refer to it as people. If people were in the habit of referring to King George Council or Winston and his gang, it would go a long way clearing thought and reducing frightful landslide into theocracy. I love the idea that it's you have to talk about people ruling other people. And in, in the books, a lot of people might criticize Lord of the Rings for being monarchisty, like all the great monarchs come and rise, but the monarchs actually don't have a lot to say with the day-to-day governing of their cities. They actually act more like judges who interpret difficult cases in the law. And in Lord of the Rings, it's a lot more about small is good and knowing who's ruling you and knowing everything around. I think libertarians could take a lot of... Tolkien, of course, was a Catholic and he believed in subsidiarity, the principle that everything should be dealt with in the lowest level possible. I think that's where Tolkien, not a libertarian, but we can look at him and say, those are some good ideas, my guy.
1: All right. I kind of have, I have a fun question that I want to (laughs) ask. I want to know who everyone's favorite character is. Sam. Sam
0: is (laughs) the true hero. (laughs) He's the true hero. It's because of him that everything is actually gets to happen in the context of the films um i i think there was a lot of times where while things were set in the right in you know the right direction that without sam intervening and showing his love and devotion for Frodo, he would have been put in a lot more situations where they wouldn't have been able to accomplish their task. Um, and I I think just in particular, I love his character in the way that he is portrayed by Sean Astin, who I think does, I think, one of, if not the best performances in a series of films that are generally acted extremely well. The, the cast, for the most part, is great. Just phenomenal casting. But I think Sean Astin's Samwise Gamgee is number one for me. It's the tops.
1: I agree with that. Anyone else want to throw a contender in?
0: My favorite character since I've watched movies since I was very young has changed.
3: It first started as Aragorn, then I moved to Legolas, back to Aragorn. Then I went to Sam when I got older. Then as I got a little older, it changed to Theoden. Theoden, the King of Rohan, has become one of my favorite characters because he is a Tra- like, same with baromir too i love him as well they're both tragically human and they have so many failings and they don't always get things right but they're always trying to set things right i find bernard hill who is, plays the captain titanic as well but i remember the bit where his son aedrid dies and he has he talks about how no child have to, or no father have to bury their son absolutely breaks it and then kind of his whole coming out of being brainwashed by saruman and regaining his confidence. I think that's a brilliant story. And I love Baromir. I'll always love Baramir for his flawedness, but also his sacrifice at the end. I love that speech out of Folges at the end, my brother, my captain, my king, admitting all of his failings. I love them all, but I'd probably say, probably say right now I'm feeling Théoden. In, in two years, I'll probably go to someone else.
2: I mean, in, in the books, it's hard for it not to be treebeard. Um, I'm not altogether on anyone's side because no one is altogether on my side. I just want to be here alone in the woods thinking in my long, lovely language. Um, and, you know, Tom, Tom Bombadil also sits alone in the woods, but he's, he, Tom Bombadil's fundamentally silly and Treebeard is fundamentally, I'm going to sit here and think my deep thoughts. And there's something lovely about that. But, uh, but I, I'll say it underrated character in these conversations in both the book and the movies is Mary Frodo has been raised by Bilbo the adventurer and has been cultivated in an important way by both Bilbo and Gandalf that you are going to be someone who is going to go off and be important someday um, the only question is when and at, er, early in the book it's already clear that Frodo knows that this is probably more or less what's expected of him Um Legolas is the son of a king Gimli is born to a family of adventurers who retaken the Lonely Mountain uh, and Pippin is a fool of a Took until near the end But we go through the books and when the hobbits are being treated as fundamentally childlike they're literally being carried around a lot of the time uh, and even Frodo hasn't yet fully come into any sense of leadership uh, Mary is steadily maturing, and he's paying attention. He's reading the maps in Rivendell. When Mary and Pippin get separated and get kidnapped by the orcs, it's Mary who has his wits about him and says, well, if Gandalf's not here and Aragorn's not here and Frodo's not here, we have to do for ourselves. And without having been raised with the expectation that he was going to be uh, a leader, someone who had presence of mind in combat, someone who was going to see the world— he just figures it out.
4: I'll second. I, Mary was, uh, was so you took mine, but I, I, um, all, all on the underrated theme, and maybe this gets into a common complaint by people who only ever watch the the movies. So you've probably heard the one where it is. Uh, if the eagles could fly them away from Mount Doom, why couldn't they fly the hobbits to Mount Doom? Just <laughs> obviate the entire necessity for this long trilogy of, <laughs> of films and bada bing, bada boom. It's it's all over just like that. Um, is that it's rooted in uh, a change that Jackson makes to um, to a lot of the non. Uh, anthropoid characters. So like, you know, the Ents, what he does with the Ents is of a piece with this. The same thing's true with like Tom Bombadil getting cut out. Now, and again, I don't fault Jackson for removing Tom Bombadil because even Tolkien had acknowledged that Bombadil didn't really fit with the plot, but he wasn't, it, it, the movie's not just, I mean, the books weren't just about plot. There was stuff in there that he put in because he liked it. He had worked on it in other places. And um, Bombadil is kind of a foil for, uh, Sauron Sauron like that um, both of them are masters Bombadil is considered a master but uh, uh, Bombadil is he lives in harmony with uh, with it with the forest whereas Sauron wants Dominion I mean so they're they're kind of foil characters they takes he takes Bombadil out because Bombadil doesn't fit in the kind of an epic story uh, uh, struggle between superpowers between good and evil and Bombadil is someone who sits who sits apart. Like literally from the plot in a sense, and from that kind of that that struggle that defines so much of the rest of the uh, of the trilogy, um, and same with the Ents. You know, he kind of uh, Jackson changes the Ents uh, to make them, uh, frankly, less less interesting and impressive in the movies versus in the books. But the same thing he does with the Eagles, and so the Eagles end up being underrated because in the movies the Eagles are just these like they're essentially just dumb birds who. Um, Gandalf can summon. He sends off a moth, and like, oh, send the moth. Get the eagles to come act as a Deus ex machina, right? Like, move the plot forward. But in the books, it's very clear the eagles are intelligent, just like the Ents, and they have they're, they're you know they have their own society, they have their own conversations, and they have their own motivations. In the movies, they just exist to help the. Uh, you know the, uh, the 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 human elfish and dwarf they to, to move the plot along for the people that really matter to Jackson but in the books they're their own separate society it's not like they're they fly high above so what happens whether Sauron wins and the elves lose and what happens they're removed from that they have their own sets of concerns and interests and that kind of gets stripped out of the movies so I would say the Eagles are underrated. Uh, properly rated by the books but underrated by the movies and that, that also explains why they don't fly to, to mount doom because like that's just not they have their own interests and their own uh set of motivations their own society they don't just serve at the beck and call of gandalf and when you make them do that that so jackson introduced an unnecessary question uh by making him into essentially dumb birds
2: People had always ask that question about the books, too. And the answer is, the Nazgul would have ripped them to shreds.
3: Exactly. That's what <laughs> I always say. They have a bunch of dragons there. Why would they just go, oh, yeah, I'm going to suicide charge into this for people I don't know and don't care about? It's always frustrating that question. The second you said it, Paul, I, I was about to cry, really. I <laughs> was a huge fan. I've just had to answer it for years. and It makes me more and more miserable every time I do. <laughs>
4: Every time a journalist wrote a review of the movie, that somehow it seemed to make its way into the review. Like, we don't get why it was all so necessary. It had to be so long.
1: <laughs> <sighs> yeah, nine hours of your life. Or more. It was slightly more than nine hours of your life.
3: I watch the extended <laughs> editions every Christmas. So so, 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 so,
2: I'm a little concerned, Natalie. It doesn't sound like you watched the extended versions.
1: Uh, no, I did not watch the extended versions. And, you know, there's just some things I can't devote time to. <laughs> That's one of them.
3: Just the most popular book and movie for the last 100 years, yeah. You're lucky we're only doing
0: one episode on
4: this. (laughs) What you need to do now is go watch the uh, Ralph Bakshi version, the animated version from the 70s. That's that's the next level of, of fandom.
0: Thanks for listening. If you want to challenge Natalie, a true Tolkien head, to some Lord of the Rings trivia, make sure to hit us up on Twitter, at Pop and Lock Pod. That's pop, the letter N, lock with an E, like the philosopher, pod. Also make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.